0: Buffalo Wild Wings has specials on food from 3 to 6, Monday through Friday, and great deals on drinks all day. It's the perfect way to offset a long day. Text that hilarious joke about your boss to your boss. What? No, no. Try a $3 Wild Herd by Goose Island. Set your morning alarm for 6 p.m.? Ah! That calls for $5 strawberry margaritas. So if you ask your phone why you're still single and... Ha, ha, ha. Seriously? Head to Buffalo Wild Wings. At participating locations, taxes and fees apply. Dine-in only. Drink responsibly. Offers vary by location. Void where prohibited. After Justin Bieber teamed up with Tim Hortons to create Tim Beebs, he knew his job wasn't done. So he's bringing Tim Beebs back and pairing them with his delicious new French Vanilla Beebs brew, steeped for 16 hours. That's 16 long, pensive, dedicated hours. But hey, take it from Justin. It's worth the wait. Try my new French Vanilla Beebs brew for a limited time, only at Tim Hortons. Order it with your favorite Tim Beebs for the perfect pairing at participating U.S. restaurants while supplies last. Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. This week we will be covering one of the most bloodiest and pointless battles of mankind, really. This uh, this week we are covering the Battle of the Somme, so for those of you who have seen it on Facebook, um, there are a few... Uh, quite important or quite big battles um, in the First World War. It was quite obvious. It was First World War, uh, mainly due to the equipment, the trenches, the uh, the helmets are a big giveaway as well. Um, so you know, the, it, good guesses. Um, I think everybody guessed the Somme. To be fair, it is possibly the most famous one, um, and definitely the the bloodiest. Um, not a nice one for me to research to be honest um, I knew quite a bit about this beforehand and every time you research something like this it just gets worse and worse and worse so it's really not um, this isn't a happy story by, by any stretch of the imagination and you know for those of you who are into the first world war or who know a little bit about the first world war Uh you will know that the first world war was four years long or four and a half years long um, and it was from july the 28th 1914 until the 11th of november 1918 Um, that was the first world war and the battle of the somme was fought in june 1916 so this was halfway through the war now we're going to have to give you a a bit of an overview on the first world war and how it was fought before we get into the battle and the main reason for that is so you actually have an understanding of why this battle was so bloody and why it was possibly one of the well it's it's a hard one it was one of the greatest british victories but then it was also one of the worst British victories if that makes sense considering the amount of lives that were lost Um, but we'll we'll talk about the trench warfare now in the First World War um, Germany started by entering into France uh, pretty much unscathed Uh, when the Allies retaliated they pushed the Germans back to a point where the Germans went right we're not going any further back than we have and they dug in what they did was they built defensive lines all the way from the north sea all the way down to switzerland stretching somewhere between 450 and 500 miles so there were german soldiers dug in trenches pretty much all the way along this line the english and the french troops did the same they dug in their lines and they were across a battlefield which was called no man's land and the battlefield separated the two armies now there are obviously other parts to world war one and there are a lot of sea battles that happened during world war one and a lot of air battles as well Um, but for this we are focusing on the armies now When you think of trench warfare, most people would think of one trench dug all the way along and men filling the trench. Now, that's not the case. These trenches had a front line, a second line, and a reserve line. In between these lines were communication lines. So if you can imagine, almost like, well, there'd three lines and then one line, joining all three together, if that makes sense from front to back. Um, There would be a few communication lines and uh, that's what they would well they were communication and supply lines depending on uh, what they were used for. Some were used uh, specifically for phone lines and for communication between the front and the back and some were used to bring up new uh, weapons and ammunition. So they were communication and supply. Now When we look at the Battle of the Somme in particular, this stalemate had been going on for about two years, and the British commanders decided that there was only one way to break that stalemate, and what they had to do was they had to push the Germans back. The only way to push the Germans back was, in their eyes, to hit them with an artillery barrage that the world has never seen before and that was the plan, to pummel the German lines for seven days. Once this had been done, they could then advance their armies over the top, and into no man's land, down into the German front line, and either kill or take prisoner any Germans that were there, and push them back. Now, in principle... It seemed like a good idea. The British had built a big infrastructure of railways and uh, shipments to bring in artillery. Um, And they brought in roughly 3 million artillery shells to the artillery barrage at the Somme. And it seemed like a good idea. And the point was, you know, the the main reason... The First World War was so bloody. Was if you managed to get over the top, the only way you could win the battle would be to get into the other t- the other um, army's trenches and attack them inside their trench. The problem with that is once you get over the top, you were very easily seen. You were a very easy target and therefore, majority of men were picked off one by one. Um, Not only that, had you managed to cross no man's land under constant machine gun fire and um, rifle fire and grenades and potential artillery. uh, You then were faced with a wall of barbed wire where you had to get through the barbed wire before you could actually get down into the trenches to attack the other the other side. The advantage was always with the defending side. No matter who went over the top, whether the Germans went over or the English went over, the advantage was always with the side that was stuck in the trenches. Now, as you can imagine, the artillery barrage was designed to destroy the German front line it was designed to destroy the barbed wire and it was pretty much designed so that the English didn't have to fight as they went over no man's land they could literally walk across and straight into the the German front line that was the plan in principle anyway well that was the plan until the Germans decided to fuck it up um they they hit first the germans uh in february 1916 before the english and french could make their attack on the somme decided to attack verdun now verdun was a french stronghold and it was a very important town to the french which required all of French reserve troops to change their tactics and head to Verdun to defend the town. Now, Verdun is a battle that I can cover on a different time, a different podcast, um, because it is, uh, in its own right, a very, very important battle. Uh, The problem for the English, or the British, is... They are now left with the plan to attack the Somme on their own. Um, they have a very small number of French troops left to to guide to aid them, and it is now going to be basically down to the British. And it is the biggest attack the British have done for the entire war. The most of the First World War up until this point, the British were aiding the French. Um, and the French were leading the the charge almost against the German army. And now the British really had to make their mark on the war, really. This was their big attempt to do some damage and to show that they weren't just there to help, they were there to actually win this war. So General Haig, who is in charge of the British army, uh, now has a 25-mile stretch uh, around the river Somme to attack, north and south of the river. South of the river is where the French army starts, and the French army goes all the way down to the bottom of France. They they follow the entire line. The top of the Somme, or north of the Somme, is where the British army are, uh, all the way up to Belgium, and that's where the Belgian army joins at Ypres. Uh, the general himself would rather have moved the attack to Ypres in Belgium and the reason for that is it was more strategic to do that and there was a lot more tactical advantages to that however it would have meant that the English were completely alone whereas at least where they were at the Somme they did have the French army just slightly south of the river to help them out if they needed them, uh, so it it made tactical sense to attack Ypres, but for the manpower, it was better for them to attack the Somme, and that's why they attacked at the Somme. So we know where the battle's taking place, and he knows that his army is very, very inexperienced. There was a big drive in England in 1914 for men to sign up to the army when they realized that the war was not going to end by christmas as they predicted there was a wave of patriotism that hit england and hit great britain where you know a lot of men i mean at this this point we're talking half a million men would sign up to join the british army to help win the war now these guys were not soldiers; they were your average man on the street, and they signed up. There was a, a rule given by Lord Kitchener. This was, they were known as Kitchener's Army. Lord Kitchener he did a thing which we call pals battalions. So what they are is their pals, their friends. So if you signed up with your local football team or your local place of work or your local cricket team uh, say all 11 of you on your local cricket team went to sign up for the army you would be put together you would all be put together and the reason for that was they believed that the camaraderie that already existed between friends would be beneficial on the front line and obviously when these soldiers got to the front line and realized the Appalling conditions that they had to to deal with. You know, having your friends around you who you've known for your whole life, or you know, guys that you can have a bit of fun with, uh, I think probably did help. And I also think the government really they knew that they needed to give the the troops some sort of a morale boost because. The conditions in the First World War, as I'm sure most of you are aware, were horrible, um and you know, absolutely unhumane, really. So these guys did very little training and they were thrown in to the Somme. Uh you know, five hundred thousand men were thrown at the Somme um over the course of the battle. Now the battle of the Somme actually lasts four months, um so it is quite a quite a big battle Um, but obviously when these guys got there their training was very minimal they had very basic equipment, some of them weren't even fully equipped you know, they were just not ready for the type of battle that they were going to be put into and the French needed them sort of now really they didn't have a chance to to get battle ready you know anyone who's in the army will tell you I mean I've never been in the army I know a lot of people who have uh, anyone who tells you that when you go out there as a soldier for the first time you are shitting yourself I don't think there's any soldier in the world who's ever gone onto a battlefield for the first time and not shit themselves literally or physically so I'm assuming some of them probably have physically I know I probably would to be honest so um, you know these guys were very very green they'd never been in this situation before and now all of a sudden they're being thrown into somewhere where they have no idea what they're doing Um, to make it worse for them the objective seemed so easy you know They were told, we're going to spend seven days firing artillery shells at the German front line. This should wipe out all the Germans on the front line and it should also clear out the barbed wire. All you need to do is stroll across the field, jump into the German trenches and shoot anybody you see. And you need to take... That first trench, the entire line, the entire 25 miles of German trench between that and the second trench needs to be taken on the first day. That's the plan, right? Now, when you put that down on paper and you think, right, there's not going to be anybody there because they're all going to be dead. You know, we're firing thousands upon thousands of shells at them for seven days straight. This should this should do it. You know there shouldn't really be anybody there. So the British Fourth Army this is the army that was there at the Somme at the time. They were led by Lieutenant General uh, Sir Henry Rawlinson, so he was in charge of the Fourth Army under General Haig. Now they drew, like I said, they drew up this plan. They had fourteen hundred artillery guns ready to fire. Shells on the Germans for seven days. They also uh, dig right under the trenches. So um, there were crews that were tunnellers. Now, if anyone's watched Peaky Blinders, uh, that was Tommy's job. In if you watched uh, Peaky Blinders, Tommy Shelby, the main character, he was World War One. He was a um, a tunneller. So they were real. That's what they did. They used to tunnel under the German trenches, under their front line. And place mines either on the trench or, or underneath or just before or wherever they were told to really, these guys were normally um coal miners or people who worked on London underground or things like that um so they knew they knew about tunneling um and that's what that's what their job was now there were nineteen mines placed underneath the Germans at very strategic points and what was supposed to happen is they were supposed to hit this artillery barrage for seven days at the end of the seven days they were to detonate the mines then spend another hour with that extremely heavy artillery barrage stop and at half past seven the troops were supposed to go over the top that was the plan so the artillery barrage begins 1.6 1.6 million shells are fired over the seven day period that the british are firing and this bombardment was so loud that it could actually be heard in london um i'm, I'm a sh- i don't know the exact distance but it, it's got to be a minimum of 500 miles away and um, they could hear the artillery going off so that just gives you a little bit of an idea What that was like what it also would do to a soldier who has never been at battle now it's one thing to it's not really spoken about in in many anything really that i've read but it was the first thing that came to my mind when i heard about it was you're talking about hundreds of thousands of new troops who have never been in battle before and the first thing they witness is seven days of artillery that is that loud it can be heard over 500 miles away that's got to be a scary thought Um, it's got to be very intimidating and very nervy and I can understand how these guys well I can't understand how these guys were feeling but you can almost imagine the, the sense of fear that would be going through them now what you've got to remember is The principle of this attack would have worked however when the british built trenches they did not build trenches to stay very long and if you actually look at any world war one trench system the german trench system was a million times better than the english and the reason for that the english were looking to push back The British and the French were looking to push back the Germans further and further. So the trenches that they built were not designed for them to stay in very long. So they dug a trench on the basis that, you know, in a a week's time or so, they'd probably have to dig another trench a little bit further along um, because they would have pushed the Germans back a mile or so. And that was the plan. Whereas the Germans had come that far, That they were not going to go backwards they dug these trenches because they didn't want to move anywhere they were planning on staying there for the long haul so the german trench system was a lot better it was a lot deeper and it was a lot better protected so they dug very very deep the germans to the point that artillery barrages were almost ineffective against the Germans. You know, unless a shell landed smack bang in the middle of the trench, you were pretty safe. You you know, you were that far underground that you you were quite safe from most of it. And the English didn't anticipate this. What they also didn't anticipate was the lack of experience from their artillerymen the poor aiming that they had, and the fact that out of the 1.6 million shells that were fired, at least half of them didn't actually explode. So, you know, you're talking about very inaccurate guns, very unreliable ammunition, and very well-defended German trench systems. Now, the British used uh chlorine gas as well uh with this artillery bombardment um and a lot of uh germans were were poisoned because of this obviously the art you know when they started using the gas the the gas could seep down and and get into the bottom of the trenches where they were hiding um and and could have killed a lot of men that way so um you know i'm not one for chemical warfare um but that fact is a fact that you know the British used chemical warfare so that was the artillery bombardment the problem is because they were inaccurate they didn't actually destroy the barbed wire either and let's be honest if you are German and you're in German high command you know exactly where the British are aiming because they didn't stop aiming at the front line they weren't aiming for the second reserves they weren't aiming for the third line of the trenches they were just aiming at the front line of the german trenches so a lot of the german soldiers were moved backwards um into reserve they obviously kept some at the front line because if the british decided to advance then you know that they would you know they would be there to 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 take them down and then obviously move men forwards but a lot of men were moved out of that area so when it came the time at 7 o'clock in the morning uh, on the 1st of July where the artillery barrage almost doubled in sort of concentration they fired a lot more at 20 past 7 they stopped and then at 20 past 7 there was also a massive mine that was uh, exploded at a very, very important German strong point, which was called the Hawthorne Redoubt. So this gave the British a little bit of a chance. Um, it was a very successful mine. If you ever get a chance to go to the Somme battlefield, uh, this crater from this mine is actually still there. Um, you know it's a massive massive crater Um, and if anyone was in the Hawthorne Redoubt at this time uh, they didn't survive it was you know it's very unlikely that anybody survived that and then it went silent for about 10 minutes and all that was heard was the whistles from the officers to send the men over the top so as the British go over the top The Germans come out from their trenches and set up machine guns. They're ready. Not only that, as soon as they do that, the British artillery is now aiming at the second line. So, in order to not obviously attack the British that are approaching the front line. So, any Germans in the second line are now moved to the front line, in which case the second line is pretty safe. So, you now have men. Coming across No Man's Land into gunfire. And a lot of it. I mean, a hell of a lot of it. Now, there is a myth that says the English got up out of their trenches and walked across No Man's Land um, in a line. That didn't happen per se, but there are stories of um, some guys who joined as a football team um they joined the army um and their main one of their main players decided to dribble a football across the front line uh, across no man's land because they weren't expecting any retaliation they weren't that's how confident the british were that they felt like just you know dribbling a football across um for americans by the way uh if you're not aware of British football or what you call soccer Um, dribbling in our football is very different to dribbling in basketball Okay, it's running with the ball at your feet so if you can imagine someone bouncing a ball along that's not what happened, he was dribbling with it at his feet Um, so just thought I'd clear that one up Um, but yeah, so this is there was obviously that potential that the British just weren't expecting the retaliation that they were getting And it's also important to remember the German troops that they were coming up against were not like they were. They were not green soldiers. They were, you know, they were hardened, battle-hardened veterans that that knew what they were doing. Um, You know, the English or the British were such easy targets for the Germans on that first day. Well, you know... especially as if you can imagine you're running across a field under constant fire you get to the barbed wire and there's only one tiny little space to get through as soon as you get there every single soldier is bunched up trying to get through that barbed wire and that is a very that's an easy pickings for a soldier with a little bit of experience and a good shot. Um, machine gunners were just mowing the British down in their hundreds. They just—it was easy for them, very, very easy for the Germans just to pick the English off one by one. Now, most um, most units did not did not achieve their objective for the day. Um, the Ulster Thirty Sixth Ulster Division actually managed to do theirs uh, they got the Schwaben Redoubt, that's uh, the area that they managed to take on the German front line the problem is, because they were one of the only corps that managed to get get to their, their objective, they were unsupported, so they were on their own, and they had to retreat, so they didn't they didn't actually they, although they did it ...really was to no avail... ...because they had to give it back... ...you know... ...by the end of the night... ...there were two other units... Um, that, ...that managed to achieve their... ...their objectives... Um, ...the 32nd Regiment... ...took control of the Leipzig Redoubt... ...but again... ...were left on their own... ...and had to retreat... ...and the uh, 34th Division... Uh, ...they captured the Lochnagar ...mine crater... ...so where a mine had exploded... Uh, they managed to take control of that crater um but again you know they were forced back because there was no support because no very few of the british divisions actually managed to achieve their objective there was no support there for them to actually hold on to the strongholds that they'd managed to get hold of and let's be honest even though we're saying here these guys, t- you know, these divisions took control of these areas. Now, these were the fronts of the German front line. So, their objective for the day was to take the entire German front line and to have pushed back to the second line. And they had only managed to capture the front line in three tiny little places and hadn't actually pushed back into the second line at all so in reality alright they managed to achieve their objective they didn't really achieve the full objective you know in reality it was just a complete mitigating failure um, in regards of, of what they were trying to achieve they didn't achieve realistically they didn't achieve anything they just achieved an extremely high death toll now the hard thing for generals at this point is knowing how well the battle is going because there is no two way radios and in trench warfare the generals are nowhere near the front believe it or not uh, they had no idea what was going on on the front lines they had no idea how the battle was going um, they had telephone lines from the front of the trenches all the way to the generals at the back but these uh, telephone lines got got well they got cut they got exploded um they weren't reliable uh, they had carrier pigeons um carrier pigeons yeah not reliable at all um i even have heard stories that they had dogs where they would you know put a a message around the dog's collar and send the dog off again not reliable um you know, there was light signals, flag signals, things like that, that, you know, worked. But again, it's not not 100%. And to try and do an entire a battle, you know, breakdown to a general with a light signal, it's, it, it's not, you know, it wasn't sensible. And the only way that they could really tell how well the battle was going was through aircraft. So in other words to so take above the fly above the battlefield, have a look and say right, this division has done this, this division's done this, these haven't done it, and then report back and say right, this is what I've seen, this is what this is how it's going. The problem with this is we had been bombarding that German front line for seven days with over a million shells. There was no way they any planes could see anything. There was too much smoke, too much fog and it took almost five days, sometimes, for the generals to realise where their army had actually gone right and where it had gone wrong. You know, where it failed. It took them five days to realise that they'd failed in a certain area. Because there was just no way of them finding out how the communication was, unless the phone lines were intact. If the phone lines were okay, they found out pretty quick but like i said these weren't reliable phone lines and you know there was always that possibility that the lines could get cut or blown up in shells or anything you know it just wasn't a very good way to communicate and because of that the generals couldn't change the idea of battle and the same goes for the artillery where the artillery in this instance were firing at the second line After a certain time period, they were told to fire at the third line. And they were told to do this because they expected the British troops to walk through pretty much unscathed. And therefore, by the time they assumed the British would be at the second line, they didn't want to be hitting them with their own artillery. So they moved the artillery back. Now, obviously this hadn't happened, but the generals didn't know that and nor did the artillery so the artillery started firing not only just over the first line but now over the second line into a reserve line of German soldiers which probably weren't even there you know it was just a waste of shells a waste of ammunition um, and you know pretty pointless really but obviously there's no way of knowing what they were doing was wrong because of the poor communication systems available in trench warfare now, in the south of the Somme, so south of the river, the British army were doing a little bit better. Uh, the 21st, 7th, 18th and 30th Division all managed to take their objectives. They took the town of Freicourt, Mametz, and Montouban. Now, these were really big gains. These were pretty much what they were told to do. They were as good as taking the entire front line and pushing on to the second so it wasn't a complete failure but the north of the line just crumbled completely and the reason for this is the artillery barrage focused mainly on the north of the line so the south of the line there was less um there was less resistance at the bottom of the line where they were coming from so they had a little bit of an easier job but not taking it away from the guys who fought there because obviously they they were still under the a similar amount of pressure, but the resistance was slightly less, so they were actually able to achieve their objectives Now, all French divisions that were south of the British divisions achieved their targets for the day and took five thousand German prisoners but again, like I said, this was they were further south, and the Germans weren't just they just weren't expecting. It to be on a 25 mile front. They were expecting a smaller front where the artillery was, you know, a little bit, well, where the artillery barrage was stronger. The French artillery was better than the English artillery as well, so the French had a, a slightly better advantage in the sense that their artillery actually did a better job in tearing up the barbed wire than the British did. Now, the end of the first day of the Battle of the Somme the German losses for the day are around 12,000 men the French losses for the day 7,000 men and the British 57,000 casualties out of those 57,000 casualties around 20,000 were died on the battlefield Um out of the ones that were left uh, the ones who were left on the battlefield um, could not be recovered so they they wouldn't send out stretcher bearers to get the wounded off the battlefield because of the, the gunfire coming across from the Germans so basically there was 20,000 died on the first day 57,000 in total were injured or dead and the 37,000 that were left if they could not get off the battlefield and back to the hospitals that the english had made um they probably died at later dates it was the bloodiest day in british history now bearing in mind we're talking about a british empire and a british um army that has fought for thousands of years well at least a thousand years we've had a British army Um, whether that be a royalist army whether that be the king's army or or anything like that Um, we've had very bloody days in Britain where battles have happened uh, medieval battles and things like that but the Battle of the Somme in British history was the first day was the worst day in british history uh for loss of life and injured soldiers so it just goes to show how bad this battle actually was um, and on a little side note i found out uh that i actually had a great great grandfather who died at the battle of the somme aged 19 so i'm assuming um you know he he never got to see his his uh his son uh he never got to see his child because uh, at 19 he probably signed up in 1914 or 1915 at 18 years old was sent out there um you know chances are he he probably never saw saw his own child um and that's that's quite a quite a horrible story I I never actually realized that until until today I mean that actually told me that so um yeah uh, it's uh it's got a personal story to the to the sum as well for me now I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail um into the rest of the battle because the first day is the most poignant day of the entire battle now I will say a few little facts in regards to this. There were regiments from different countries. One of the most famous was the Newfoundland Regiment from Canada um, that came over uh, with 800 men, and out of those 800 men, uh, over 700 uh, died on the battlefield, and the Newfoundland Regiment ended on the ba- at the Battle of the Somme. They they didn't. Anywhere. Um, there's actually a tree uh, planted at the Battle of the Somme to indicate where the furthest Newfoundland uh, soldier actually got, and he was still about maybe 600 meters from the German front line, and he got the furthest in his entire regiment so these guys were gunned down a lot of them actually would gunned down before they even got out of the british trench because they had like i said the british trenches weren't as deep so the constant gunfire meant if you poked your head up ever so slightly the chances of you getting that your head blown off was very very high uh, it also signified the end of cavalry charges there was a cavalry charge at the Battle of the Somme, by the British, in which every everyone was was gunned down, uh, the it was too easy. I mean, uh, a a man running across a field is a big enough is a is a big enough target for a machine gunner. You then put them on horseback; it's again just too easy. That that was the end of the cavalry charges um in British history that was the last cavalry charge at the Battle of the Somme. Um British still used horses for generals and things like that, and if you ever go to things like changing of the, the colour, um horse guides horse guards parade in London. So we still use horses in the army, but that was that was the end of cavalry charges, so to speak. Um and the Battle of the Somme was the first place where tanks were used in warfare the invention of the tank allowed the Allies to finally achieve their objectives in November 1916 so this has gone on from the 1st of July when the first men went over the top all the way to November this is 4 months of battle to gain a whopping 10 miles that's all they pushed the Germans back 10 miles in 4 months And they, you know, it's argued even now as to whether it was worth it. And the reason they question whether it was worth it was the casualty rate. The British casualty rate over the four-month period of the Battle of the Somme was 430,000 men. The French, 200,000 men and the Germans, 450,000 men. So you're talking over a million guys here are injured or died from this battle. And the effects of this battle lasted for years. There are soldiers who came out of the battle, went home, dealt with shell shock, dealt with depression there are soldiers who couldn't cope and ended up killing themselves years after the battle because this battle was just one of the most disgusting horrible nasty things anybody could ever do as a human um you know the piles and piles of bodies from this um you know it's it like I said, it's still argued today as whether it was a success or not. The British public saw it as a success because we'd pushed the Germans back ten miles um The soldiers on the front line who have watched half a million of their comrades get shot down probably didn't see it as much of a success um you know. I'll I'll read to you a quote now um, from the Telegraph which was uh, printed at the time and it reads The Battle of the Somme Big advance by British German lines driven back in sweeping offensive at Somme get 2,300 prisoners So it doesn't give you any information and this is all they were told um there was other newspapers that say uh, british loss is not so heavy um it just just to give you an idea on propaganda in the first world war that you know the british papers dumbed down the amount of men that lost their lives at this battle and they did it on purpose because had they come out and said British have moved 10 miles in four months and lost nearly half a million men, there would have been a public outcry for the war. Um, I mean, there was a public outcry for the war, um, but you know, some of these places, you know, Britain, certain villages in Britain where all the men in the village signed up and none of them returned, you know, there were mining towns in South Wales that every man in that village signed up and there are no men that returned from the war so you know an entire generation of people just just died um you know it it was a it was a shockingly costly war um and this battle was extremely costly for the british however had this battle not have happened it is possible that we would not have won the first world war because when they by doing this they allowed the french to recapture and hold on to verdun and had the french lost verdun the french probably would have capitulated and much like World War II, leave Britain on their own as the only power fighting against the Germans. So, the fact that, although the Somme was so tragic, if the British hadn't have pushed on and won, it is possible that the French would have been overrun at Verdun, and the war would have ended. So, you know, in reality... And, uh, like I said it, it was a good thing and this is why it's debated amongst historians as to whether it was good or bad um, because the outcome meant that we won the war, um, had we lost the battle of the Somme I don't think we would have won the war so I can see both sides to to it but I, I da- can't justify any battle being worth half a million lives no matter what the outcome um, that's just my opinion so thanks for listening everybody and I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you learned something in regards to either the Battle of the Somme or trench warfare or something to do with the First World War that you didn't already know um, First World War absolutely amazing for me so many good stories uh, so many heartbreaking stories like this one um, it is an interesting war it was a very strange war and it's something that I will be picking up on at later dates but for now I hope you guys have at least enjoyed this episode something uh, something different for you so join us on Facebook, say it every single week, join us on Facebook this week in history, just click on it click add Uh, add to group, I'll add you to the group and we shall see you next week have a guess at what next week's show could be, it's always uh, something different, so for those of you who are on Patreon you will have a new Patreon episode uploaded this week as well so look out for that one you're gonna have to keep an eye out for the guests you're gonna have to guess what this one is as well i do put those up on there because if you do see something on there that is patreon that you do want to listen to get yourselves over to my patreon it's five dollars a month Uh, we've had a big influx of people over the last few weeks so i'm really really happy with that so keep joining guys if you are interested in getting extra episodes from me episodes that you won't get on this normal feed get yourselves over to patreon.com type in this week in history thank you for listening everybody and just remember we all have history so make yours great bye bye welcome to America the land of junk sleep where it's bedtime but you're double booked here there's always one more deadline to meet episode to watch or meme to share the world may not want you to sleep But we do. Only the sleep experts at Mattress Firm can help you find the right bed at the right price. Unjunk your sleep. In-store or online at MattressFirm.com today. Bundling car and renter's insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who? Look for the signs. Chances are they live in a home and have a car. They use money and enjoy having more of it. They probably drink lots of lemonade. Mmm, lemonade. And they've probably said something suspicious like, I'm bundling with GEICO or stop spying on me with those binoculars. If so, you may want to ask them how easy it was to bundle with GEICO. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors. When you love riding a motorcycle, you want to ride it everywhere, even getting a dental checkup. Mr. Carter, wouldn't you prefer the chair? I'm fine on my bike, Doc. Well, let me know if you feel any discomfort. And when you love saving money, you want to save even more. That's why GEICO makes it easy to bundle your motorcycle and car insurance. All done, Mr. Carter. Remember to brush, floss, and lubricate your drive chain regularly. Kickstart your savings with GEICO Motorcycle. Bundle and save on the things you love. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a drama coach to be an IT guy. Yeah, I'm having trouble logging in. I'm not buying it. Say it again. This time with feeling. I can't log in? Come on, man. I want to feel your struggle. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Now, like your life depends on it. I can't log in. Yes, we'll make an actor out of you yet. For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com local today.